0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Look at Psalm 27 this morning, and I'll read it for you. David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid when evildoers assail me and eat up my flesh or to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and my foes it's they who stumble and fall though an army encamp against me my heart shall not fear though war rise against me yet I'll be confident Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, You are gracious and kind. You are truly, as David proclaims in this beautiful song, our light and our salvation, our stronghold. You open our eyes to Your truth. You regularly enlighten us to reality around us. You guide us. You lead us. You are the one who saves us. You are the one to whom we run when there's trouble and there's difficulty. And in You we find refuge and help. As we contemplate this psalm, Lord, that we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth so that you would give us a glimpse into the beautiful things that you would have for us this morning in it. Because they're life-changing and they're soul-giving. But only if we understand. So, Holy Spirit, we need your help this morning to open our eyes, to blow away from our minds all distractions and thoughts of things apart from you. To give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that long to obey. Apply your word to us this morning, O oh God. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it's good to be back. It always is a little weird when I'm not here on a on a Lord's day. And uh, for the last two Lord's days, I've not been here. I've been in Seattle, Washington. On uh, my annual two-year, two year, two, not two years, two weeks it seems like two years of military service. It's enjoyable, good ministry for the most part. The Last two Sundays, I've been able to get up early and watch the live stream of the sermons. And on the West Coast, I'm three hours behind, so that works out beautifully. I got to listen to Pastor Britt. And uh, listen, I got to listen and deliver two fantastic messages on, on the image of God. Hope you were here for that. If you weren't, you should go online and listen to uh, the recordings or the video of that. really, really great, great stuff, brother. I appreciate that. It was, it was a great way to wake up on the Lord's Day and get things started. I could listen to you, have breakfast, and then go to somebody live uh, at, a, at a church there in Seattle. So... Uh, but it's weird. It's weird sitting in an audience where you don't know anybody. And if you're a guest today, I fully empathize with you. I was that for the last two weeks. The church I went to is a great church. There's a, a great pastor who does you know, a great job of opening God's Word and teaching. Uh, but both Sundays, I literally sat by myself, and I don't think a soul spoke to me either week. And I began to wonder, I, I, you know, I'm going through my checklist. Did I shower this morning? Yes. I did. You know, I'm sniffing. Yeah, I'm good. It's not that. And then I began to wonder, am I just plain invisible? Am I some superhero that has a power I don't know about? Join the Avengers or something, but... um, I don't know what the cause of that was. It's probably me, but I'll just say this. Every time that experience happens to me, I'm thankful to be pastor of this church because I know, at least I'm confident, that it's fairly impossible to come here and have that experience, I believe, on the Lord's Day. Because... I have the privilege of serving a congregation that loves people, that is interested in people. And uh, if you're new today and this is your first time, I sure hope you've already felt that and experienced that. If you haven't, I bet you will before you leave now. Um, I uh, had an interesting experience this week while I was away on military service. I was going about my normal routine, and uh, on Tuesday I'd traveled two hours via car to a... Coast Guard unit that was in a different location from where uh, I was in Seattle to visit this sort of unique group that was out away from everyone else, and after I got there, uh, my phone rang right about the time I got there, and I picked up my phone, and uh, I missed the call, I, but I recognized the number and realized I should probably call it back, so I stepped outside and called, and the, other, the, no, the voice on the other line was a, a voice that I knew, uh, sort of a high-ranking official up at Navy uh, Reserve Command in Norfolk. And uh, he says to me, uh, Chaplain Smith, and I said, Yes, sir. And he said, uh, I need to tell you something. And I said, Well, tell away. And he said, I didn't actually say that. He's an 06. I would never do that. Um, uh, I think I said something far more respectful and polite. Um, but he delivered a message to me that I was not prepared for, that I did not want to hear. And the message was this. You have been selected uh, for an involuntary mobilization to active duty for nine months of your life in the nation of Bahrain. I had to Google Bahrain um, sometime after that. I was uh, stunned to get that news. It was not news that I was looking for. It was not news that I wanted It was not news that I saw coming in any way shape or form Uh, It was a whole set of circumstances that uh, invaded my life at a time that At least through my human perspective was horribly inconvenient It's a mission that I really did not want to do And I could think of a thousand reasons why it really stunk to get that message I uh, wish I could tell you, as your pastor, standing in front of you this morning, that I responded to that news um, with faith and joy and love in the Lord. But I'm thankful that I was on the other coast, away from anybody who knows me, when that message was delivered. Because I spent Tuesday through Saturday really responding in a really horrible way that news. Uh, I vacillated between extremely angry, that was where I started, t- to terribly sad, to incredibly discouraged. And for about four days there, I felt like a ping pong ball sort of bouncing back and forth between those three sort of extremes of my sort of emotional curve, if you will. Depending on which part of that thing I thought about, it would lead me to one of those three places. And I wish I had responded better, but I didn't. Thankfully, I was alone, and I had lots of time in a car driving around, and the Lord gave me some beautiful sunshine, an opportunity to think, an opportunity to pray. When I woke up last Sunday morning, I uh, tuned into the live stream and listened to a great message on the the image of God. I then tuned into one of my friends who's in Oklahoma, a pastor of First Baptist Church of Mustang, Oklahoma. If you're ever in Mustang, Oklahoma, you should go to First Baptist Church. A great pastor. I listened to him preach, and then I went to church live. So I was well sermonized last Sunday uh, by three great preachers. And it was in the context of all of that that the Lord whipped me into shape in some sort of painful ways. It was in the context of all of that that the Lord began to sort of chastise me a bit, if you will, internally. He began to, to say to me, hey, what are you doing? What are you, what are you so mad about? What are you, where do you get off being discouraged and bouncing around like this? Don't you remember when you preached James chapter 1 not that long ago? See, this is the danger of preaching God's word. You remember where it says, "Count it, consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance has its perfect way, making you perfect or mature and complete." You remember? That? Do you remember what you told people on that Sunday? And what about First Peter when you preached through that book? Do you remember where it says? Don't don't what, what do you don't consider it strange concerning the fiery trial that's to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. It's happened to you as what's common to everyone. And although, by the way, remember when you did a little mini series on Jonah a couple of years ago? Do you remember what you told everybody on that Sunday and those Sundays? When God commissioned Jonah, and he didn't want the mission, and he went a different way. And God hurled a storm at him. Do you remember that series you preached? And what about Psalm 27? At that point, I'd had enough. I was just done. I get it, Lord. I get it. And it was at that point and through that sort of internal interchange that the Lord helped me to see that my perspective was on the wrong thing and that my attitude stunk. This is me just being sort of transparent with you, if you will. Sort of via confession. Confession. And he helped me to understand that all the things I was thinking about really were insignificant in the big scheme of life and in the sovereignty of God. And he helped me to see that there was an awful lot more at stake than what I had fully understood. That what was at stake was nothing less than the entire preaching ministry that I've done for, you know, two decades now. Because it was though the Lord was saying to me, you know, all these things that you've preached that I'm reminding you of... Was that just for everybody else? Or is it for you too? You see, what had happened is I had run upon a situation in my life where my theology had run into a head-on collision with my circumstances. And when that happened, I didn't respond well. But the Lord helped to recalibrate my understanding of what was going on in my life. And he helped me to come back to his word and to remember what I've taught you. And he challenged me to practice what I preach. Now, I would love to be able to tell you um, that I always practice perfectly everything that I preach. If you're under some illusion that that's the truth, let me just shatter that for you this morning. It's not. It isn't. None of us get this right all the time. None of us live this stuff out perfectly. That's what the beauty of the body of Christ is. The beauty of the body of Christ is not that we are a gathering of perfect people who get this stuff right every day and in every circumstance of our life. The beauty of the body of Christ is that we, we recognize when we look in one another's eyes that we are a bunch of people who are flawed in many ways. And we're striving toward the same goal, but in many ways we all fall short. And we love one another and we encourage one another and we help one another strive toward that goal of being like Christ. And I'm not immune to that. And so I need you and you need me in that regard. And so I wanted to come back to Psalm 27 um, this morning, partly as confession, and partly because I just needed to, for my own self, walk through this again this week. And so I'm sort of preaching to me today. Maybe uh, subsequently there's some application to you in this mix as well. I'll uh, lay out details of what are the implications of my uh, coming mobilization. I don't have to go until October at this point, so um, we'll talk more about that later, not this morning. But I came to Psalm 27 because for me, Psalm 27 was is all about what happens when life comes into a head-on collision with your theology. It's all about us sort of parachuting into the life of, Old Testament Saint David Who's just a magnificent musician And a magnificent writer And he writes songs that really are, are Sort of an emanation from his heart That reflect what he's experiencing In his life And the Psalms range from Exuberant joy To deep, dark sadness and grief And they go all across the emotional Sort of spectrum from there David is real and he's raw when he writes the Psalms, and I love that about them. He doesn't cover over pain, he doesn't cover over difficulty. He just lays it out there for us, and he helps us to see what does it look like to live hard things in life in light of what we believe. And when we get into Psalm 27, that's exactly what we see: David expressing what happens when life circumstances collide with our theology. He begins this psalm by laying out really a beautiful theology of God. That's what the first three verses are. He lays out a, sort of this theology of faith that is the sort of undergirding of his life and his belief system. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart won't fear. Though war rise against me, I'll be confident. He lays out wrote, sort of his understanding of who God is to him in this first three sections. And he says three things about the Lord. He says, The Lord is my light, He is my salvation, and He's my stronghold. Three words that have vivid meaning to David. The Lord is His light. He's the one who, who opens His eyes and gives gives Him a clear vision of what's going on around Him and a clear understanding of what's happening in His life and a clear vision of the pathway forward. His, he, the, the Lord for David is, is a light that... that, that that clears away the darkness, that reveals the path, that that helps him to know what is true and what is right. The way David casts this in the psalm, it's as though he's saying, the Lord is, is the sun, the S-U-N of my life. He's the, he's the never-setting sun that is constantly, daily, moment by moment, enlightening my life, showing me the way, giving me vision and giving me understanding of my life and what's going on around it and what I'm to do. The Lord is my light, He says. Psalm 36, verse 9, He says something similar. He says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. S. Lewis Johnson, the great pastor of the past, said this. He said, We never know anything correctly until we know God's interpretation of it. I thought that's a beautiful, a beautiful truth. We never know anything correctly until we know God's interpretation of it. I mean, things happen in our lives, and we interpret the circumstances as we experience them, but our, in, our interpretations are often quite wrong. It's not until we uh, sort of shut our eyes and we put our gaze upward, and we begin to look to the Lord, and we say, Lord, I I see what's going on around me, and I have sort of some initial reactions to that, And and through the lens of what I understand in sort of my limited human brain, I have an interpretation of what's happening around me, but I'm not sure that that's right. I don't even fully understand what's going on until you give me light. When you interpret what's going on around me, then I know what's really going on. And David says, this is what the Lord is to me. He's my light. He's the one who interprets the, the things around me so that I know reality. And I'm not just bound with my own limited human perspective. So the Lord is my light. He's my salvation. David was a king, right? He understood what it meant to be saved. He isn't just using a spiritual euphemism here, although that's probably underneath it. He's talking about real life life. Real pain, real struggles, real danger, real fear. The Lord has been the one who at many points in his life has saved him, has rescued him, has helped him. If you know much about his life, you know, as a young man slinging stones at a giant. As a young man fighting off lions to keep them away from the sheep that he was tending. And as a a grown man leading a nation and fighting wars and battles with enemies on all fronts. He knew what it was to be saved. And he understood that the reason he was alive and the reason that he had survived every dangerous encounter in his life is because the Lord had been his salvation. Now David was also a man after God's own heart. He was a man of faith. So he understood not just his physical circumstances, but his very soul also was in the hands of the Lord. And the only hope for his soul, just like the only hope for his body, was that the Lord would save him. The Lord is my stronghold, he says. This is military terminology. A uh, stronghold is a, a strong place where we find security and find protection. It's a, it's a fortress. If you think of like a military fort, David says, you, Lord, you, you are my, you're my fortress. You're my stronghold. When I'm in danger and, and I'm running for dear life, it's to you I run. And I run through your gates and slam the gates shut and I can rest and find safety and find security. And I can go to sleep and put my head on the pillow. No matter what's blowing around me because I know in you I'm safe and I'm secure and I can be at peace the Lord is my light he's my salvation he's my stronghold David had a rich understanding of how the Lord operated in his life and who the Lord was functionally to him And because he believed those things about the Lord, because the Lord was his light, because the Lord was his salvation, and because he had experienced the Lord as his stronghold, there were some results of that in his life. And he tells us what they are. He says, because of these things, I shall not fear. My heart shall not fear. I won't be afraid. Even though war rise against me, I'll be confident. You see, it's his theology of God that gives him peace and that gives him confidence. It's as though he's saying, I know the Lord. What have I got to be afraid of? What is that puny army out there going to do to me? I know the Lord. The Lord is my stronghold. What am I afraid of? What am I running from? Why is fear captivating my heart when I know the Lord? My enemies bring it on. It's like he's saying bring it on you'll stumble and you'll fall because the Lord is with me war no problem I'll fight it I've got the Lord on my side there's a fearless sort of confidence that comes in and his doubts are blown away when he has a clear picture of the nature of his God And I would be willing to bet in your life it's just like it is in mine When doubts start to rise and fear starts to rise And we begin to lack confidence in ourselves in the situation in which we find ourselves in It's almost always when those things begin to rise in my life They almost always are matched with an ebbing of my view and vision of God When my thoughts of God begin to ebb My fears and doubts rise when my, when my clear vision of the Lord begins to rise, my fears and my doubts begin to subside. And that's what David is saying. And David has a remarkable theology of God. But here's the reality of good theology. We don't know if we truly believe it until it's actually challenged. This is true of your theology and mine. We don't know if we actually believe what we say we believe until we run into circumstances that challenge what we believe. It's then sort of in the crucible of life when we have to make choices and do things and act that we actually find out if we really believe what we say we believe. Anybody can sit in church on a Sunday and say they believe in God. But when the tough times come, what we believe truly then becomes obvious. And I guess you could say it this way. The circumstances of life become sort of the furnace of our faith. They either purify or strengthen the genuine faith that we possess or they burn up and expose a fraudulent faith that's nothing but talk. And this is where David is. He gives us this rich theology, but then he's going to move on and talk to us about this, the actual circumstances of his life. He's going to tell us, this is what I believe going in, but here's what's happening right now. Live action, camera on, here's what's going on, here's my circumstances that are crashing headlong into what I believe about God. And this next section of the text, beginning in verse 4, we begin to see what his circumstances are. What's going on in David's life that's challenging his theology? Well, we'll do a quick rundown of this. He tells us that there's enemies around him that seek his destruction. We, we sort of see some clues about that in the first three verses when he talks about evildoers who assail him to eat up his flesh. And he talks about adversaries and foes. He talks about that in the first few verses. But if you get down to verse 11, he says, Give me, a, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. What's going on real time in David's life? He's got enemies who hate him, who seek his destruction. They want to assail him. He's got an army that's encamped against him. There's a war that's rising around him. He has liars and false witnesses who are rising up without and within inside of his world who are lying about him and slandering him. And he says, breathing out violence. That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? But that's real-time what's going on. And if it's not bad enough to have enemies around you that hate you, that seek your destruction, it goes even further. There's worse problems that he's dealing with in verse 10. And you you see this. He's feeling absolutely forsaken. He says, My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. What's he saying? He's, He's saying... We don't know the, sort of the, the, the genesis of this, what he's thinking about when he talks about his father and his mother. But we understand the gist of what he's saying. What he's saying is this, the, the, the people who are the closest to him, the ones who, are the, who should be the least likely to forsake him, even they have forsaken him. David's saying, I feel all alone. I feel all alone. Even the people who should be standing in my corner, who should be loving and supporting me, they're gone. I've got nobody I've got enemies who are trying to destroy me I've got slanderers who are lying about me and I'm all by myself and I'm completely alone hey loneliness is an awful thing if you've ever been lonely you know this you think well you know being lonely that's not a big of a deal you just kind of find something to do no if you think that you've never been lonely there's a reason why it's a way, one of the means of torture is to put somebody in a room by themselves for a long time with nothing around them and nobody to interact with. It'll drive a man or a woman crazy. And the reality is that you can be living in the world with people all around you and feel like you're in solitary confinement on the inside. And David is there, he's all alone. If that isn't bad enough to have enemies who are trying to destroy you and feeling completely alone on the inside, he tells us in verse 7 through the 9 that not only that, but the Lord seems distant to him. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious and answer me. You said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me Not. I mean, do you hear David crying out? It's like he's looking around and he's got no help. And he looks up and he, he sees God and he, he feels like God isn't even there. He feels like God isn't even around to help. It's not that he's lost his faith completely, it's just that he feels abandoned by God. The circumstances of his life have caused him to feel like God has left him alone. He knows God's still there, he knows God's still sovereign. He just feels like God's distant and not listening. He's lost that feeling of intimacy with the Lord. He's lost that feeling of closeness with the Lord. And he can't understand why all this is swirling in his life and God hasn't intervened. It seems to him like God isn't listening. And it's driving him insane. Enemies loneliness and a distance from the Lord David's in a a tough spot maybe you this morning or at some season in your life can understand and tap into a little bit of what David's feeling here maybe you've too had circumstances in your life where there has been enemies around you that have come or circumstances that just seem like an enemy in your life Maybe you, too, understand what it's like to feel lonely and all alone and to feel like even the people closest to you who should be in your corner aren't there and you're, you're just left to face stuff by yourself. Maybe you, too, understand what it, a little bit of what it feels like to look up to heaven and to pour your heart out, heart out in prayer and to feel like your prayers just hit the ceiling and bounce back in your face. Well, that's where David was. His flesh is tempted to respond in certain ways, just like ours. And the the main temptation is he's tempted to respond in fear. In fear. He's tempted to be afraid. We see that in the first verse. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Why is he asking the question? Because he's tempted to be afraid. He feels afraid and he feels exposed because what he believes about God and what he's experiencing in his life have crashed headlong. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's caught in the vortex in between. And that's really the point of this whole thing is what do we do when that happens? What do you do when what you say you believe about God crashes headlong into what's happening in your life at the moment? We looked at what David did because he does something beautiful. Listen. The first thing he does to respond to all of this is he longs for worship. In verses 4 through 6, one thing I've asked of the Lord that, that, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple. The house of the Lord he's talking about here is the Old Testament tabernacle. The temple hasn't been built. It is the the sort of the the temporary uh, mobile structure that moved with the people of Israel. It was the place where they gathered to worship the Lord together. It was the place where the symbolic presence of the Lord dwelt among his people. And the one thing David does when life has crashed headlong into his theology and he's feeling afraid and alone and abandoned and like God isn't listening is he runs to the people of God, to the, to the temple of God, to, excuse me, the tabernacle of God, to the house of the Lord where God's people is and he longs to go there and he longs to worship. We don't have time to trace it this morning, but this is a theme that runs all throughout this section of the Psalms. This idea of dwelling in the house of the Lord. This idea of Psalm 26, uh, loving the habitation of your house. Or Psalm 84, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Or Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You see, God's people, when, when life is good and when it stinks, they respond with a desire to go run to the place where the Lord is and where His people are. And that's what David wants to do more than anything. It was, in the, it was in the context of corporate worship with God's people that he felt the closest to God. And because we know that he's feeling abandoned by the Lord, and he's desperate to recapture some of that intimacy with the Lord, he longs to go be with God's people in the house of the Lord because he believes that it's in that context that the intimacy can be restored. David says when I get there When I get to the house of the Lord There's some things I intend to do I'll offer in his tent sacrifices With shouts of joy I'll sing and make melody To the Lord I find that remarkable When I understand what David's circumstances are Because the natural inclination of the human heart When life stinks And the circumstances around you Are what they were for David at this time Is not to go to the house of the Lord And sing joyfully to the Lord Think about it. When the whirlwind of life blows into your world and you haven't asked for it and you didn't expect it and circumstances have come and you didn't want them and life stinks, is your first inclination to say, Man, I just got to get to Sunday so I can get to the house of the Lord and sing joyfully to the Lord? Come on, let's be honest. That's what David wants to do. He wants to come to the Lord's house, not as an observer, but as a participant. Not as somebody who's coming to watch some, something happen with other people, but with somebody who's walking in the doors with a mission and a job. And it's to offer something. It's to do something. It's to offer sacrifices with shouts of, shouts of joy. To give his offerings, it is to sing and to make melody to the Lord. David was a singer and he loved singing with God's people. Always sort of perplexed by those who gather in the Lord's house on the Lord's day who, uh, who, who can't open their mouths and sing. I wonder if something's wrong. He has another intent when he comes into the Lord's house. It's not just to sing. It's not just to offer sacrifices. He says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, if you're just reading this psalm, you may just sort of slip over that phrase. But don't slip over it Because in that one phrase Really captures the whole purpose Of corporate worship The whole purpose Of corporate worship Is that we as God's people might gather together And gaze upon the beauty Of the Lord That's what we come to do There are other things we do when we gather Like David We offer our sacrifices We sing, we pray, we fellowship with one another And all of those things are holy and good But if we're able to do all of those things and we never gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, then something's been missed that's critical. Because it's when we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, when we begin to see the Lord with clarity, it drives away our fears and it drives away our doubts and it causes our problems that seem overwhelming to us to begin to diminish in size and importance in our lives when we see how big God is and we begin to gaze upon His beauty and truly comprehend who He is and what He does and what He's promised, the things that drive us nuts in our life and overwhelm us begin to wane. The waves that have been crashing settle down. And they don't seem so big. And they don't seem so overwhelming. And that's exactly what all worship leaders are called to do. If you want to know what worship leaders are, whether it be the pastor as a worship leader or singers who lead worship or other people who participate in leading worship, the goal of worship leaders should always be to lead the people of God to a place where they can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You come here with a thousand distractions in your life, and I know that. You've lived this week and life has happened to you and there's a thousand things going on that are on your mind that you're thinking about. You're you're probably hungry at this point and you're thinking about lunch, what's next and stuff that you've got coming up this week. Your fears, your anxieties, the stuff that's going on in your life. they're They're just distractions. And the goal that I have when I gather with you on the Lord's Day, and I hope the goal that everybody else that participates in leading you in worship on any Lord's Day is, is to to, to capture you when you come through the doors and to capture your attention and to draw you out of all of those distractions of life and to help you begin to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to see Him with clarity and to see the beauty of the Lord, to see Him as large and to see Him as magnificent and to see Him as good and to see Him as bigger than anything that you are facing in your life because we know that when that begins to happen your heart and your life and your emotions and your thoughts get recalibrated in such a way that you can launch back into the world on Monday with a better compass you know how you can tell when a pastor has done a good job it's when you walk away not saying, boy, that pastor's really smart, or that pastor's really funny, or I really like to listen to that pastor. But when you walk away saying, man, I can't believe how big God is. I, I, I can't believe God is like that. You know how you know when great worship leaders and song have done a fantastic job? It's when you walk away not saying, man, those are some great singers on that stage. Man, that was some wonderful, beautiful music. It's when you walk away saying, man, somehow in the mix of all that, I got to see God in some way that I never saw Him before. And it just captivated my heart. That's why we gather to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I hope it's what you, you do and I hope that's the reality of what happens when we gather in your life That's what David was after He said I need to get to the house of the Lord Because it's in that context that I get to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord And I know if I can just see him clearly all this other stuff will settle down So he goes and he inquires in the temple He comes seeking the Lord, seeking what the Lord offers, seeking His Word, pouring out His prayers, casting His cares on Him. And it's in the context of doing that that David finds God faithful to do some things. It's when David does that that he finds God is his refuge, and God does rescue him. He says, the Lord will hide me. He he will lift me up on a rock. You see that? really recalibrates his whole perspective. It's in the context of getting with God's people and gazing upon the beauty of the Lord that it's as though the Lord puts His hand down on His chin and says, David, look up beyond your problems and your troubles and look up to Me. And when you get a clear shot of Me, you'll understand everything else. It just falls into place. David leans in on prayer too. Did you notice that? He cries out to the Lord Hear, O oh Lord, when I cry aloud I mean, we don't have time to even sort of flesh out this prayer But just notice a few things about it It's a pretty honest prayer, isn't it? This isn't sort of a beating around the bush This isn't kind of the churchy prayers You know what a churchy prayer is, right? It's when other people are listening And you try to use churchy words So that other people think you know what you're doing and saying And you sound really spiritual and so forth You know that? You can nod your head because I know you know it I know it, you know it, we all know it, right? That's not what David's doing here. He's saying, God, you have said, seek my face. Well, God, here I am, and that's what I'm doing. That's not churchy. That's raw. God, you told me to seek your face. I'm doing it. Now show up and answer. That's a pretty honest prayer. It's a passionate prayer. It's not a whisper, it's an all out cry. He's begging God. God, hear me. God, be gracious to me. God, answer me. God, teach me. God, lead me. God, protect me. Don't cast me off. Please don't forsake me. Don't hide your face from me any longer. Let me see you. It's an honest, passionate, specific prayer that cries out to the Lord. And then David does another thing, which is where this whole psalm lands and where the whole thing turns. At the end of all of this, he's given us his theology of God And then he's told us about his circumstances And we see how these two things have crashed headlong into one another in his life And now David has to decide, based on what he believes and what he's experiencing What is he now going to do? What is he now going to do? He's told us what he believes in his mind He's explained to us a bit of his emotions that are going on based on his circumstances Now we get to find out about his will What's he going to do? Is this theology going to be proved to be true? Or is it going to be proved to be fraudulent? David makes two choices and we find it in verse 13. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David concludes this song with a two-sentence sermon that he preaches to himself. If you were to organize this psalm another way, the first three verses are David speaking to the audience. The rest of the psalm in between, up to verse 13, is David speaking to the Lord. And the last two verses are David speaking to himself. And he's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself a two-point sermon. And he's saying to himself, self Here's what you're going to do. You're going to trust in the Lord and you're going to wait on the Lord. When your life circumstances have crashed headlong into what you say you believe, there's two right choices to make every time. Number one, trust in the Lord, and number two, wait for the Lord. He declares what he doesn't feel. Do you see that? It's clear that he doesn't feel all this stuff. He feels abandoned by the Lord. He feels like he's about to go down. He feels like his enemies might just overtake him. He feels lonely. That's his heart. That's his emotion speaking. But his will and his mind say to his emotions, here is the truth. This is how you feel, self. But here is reality. Reality is, I will look upon the goodness of the Lord. God will prove himself good. God will prove himself good. Trust him. He says to Himself, even though, self, you don't feel like it right now, here's what you need to know. God will not let me down. Even though I can't see Him, even though I can't feel His presence, He will not forsake me. He will not leave me. He will not let me down. He will keep His promises. I will come out of this. Things will turn around. Praise will come back to my lips one day. Even if I don't feel like it right now. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I printed it on your sheet because I think it's worth meditating on. He said this, Our longest sorrows have a close. And there is a bottom to the profoundest depths of our misery. Our winters shall not frown forever. Summer shall soon smile. David says, look, life's given me some great reasons to be afraid, to fret, to be anxious when I gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, the Lord gives me better reasons to trust Him. He'll help me. He won't forsake me. He won't remain distant forever. He won't let my enemies destroy me. He will make this whirlwind stop. I just have to trust Him. I can't let my emotions drive the day. Corey Ten Boom, the great missionary said this when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark you don't throw away the ticket and jump off you sit still and you trust the engineer practical true Jerry Bridges writes trust is not a passive state of mind but it's a vigorous act of the soul whereby we choose to lay hold of the promises of God in spite of the adversity that sometimes feels like it will overwhelm us Listen, when life crashes in on our theology and challenges what we believe, how we respond, it's going to speak one of two things. It's going to speak fear or it's going to speak faith. The attitudes we adopt in the midst of it will speak fear or faith. The words that come out of our mouth will speak fear or they'll speak faith. And you and I have a world of people that watch us and pay attention to how we respond to the circumstances of our lives. All of us do. The Lord made me very aware of that last Sunday and I was very thankful that you were nowhere to be found last Tuesday through Friday. Because my responses spoke fear and not faith initially. Until I was able to get to the house of the Lord and spend some time gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and worshiping with God's people Because it was in that context that the Lord sort of lifted up my head and said, stop looking at the stuff that makes you afraid and look at me and remember who I am and remember what I do and remember what you've said. And the question only is right now, do you really believe what you've said? And the way we'll all know it is whether you do it or you don't. So David says, trust and wait. Trust and wait. Probably the two hardest things for any human being to ever do. Trust and wait. I don't like waiting for anything. Nothing. I can't think of one thing I like to wait for. Not one thing. Wait for the Lord. It's like the child looking out the window. Who knows his dad's coming home. He knows he's coming. He just doesn't know when. And so he peers out the window and he's just waiting any minute dad's going to show up and everything's going to be good. That's what David says. I'm looking out the window. I'm looking through the window of God's mercies and I know at any minute he's going to show up in the midst of my circumstances and all of this that's caused me to be afraid is going to be made right. Right. And he's going to work out his purposes in my life in ways that I can't even begin to fathom right now. It's a beautiful psalm, isn't it? It's a practical psalm, if you understand it. I'm so glad David wrote it because it's been a great help to me. Because I have a hard time trusting, and I have a hard time waiting but it's only when I trust and when I wait that I see the full measure of what God has planned. Paul Tripp said this, Waiting is not just about what I get at the end of the wait, but it's about who I become as I wait. So sometimes the Lord makes us wait because He needs us to become something. He's got work to do in us. It doesn't work out too well in the frenetic, crazy pace of our world and our lives. And so He makes us trust and He makes us wait while He shapes us. Hey, listen. I appreciate you being a great audience for me preaching to myself today. But perhaps, perhaps, perhaps something of what I've struggled with in the last week touches on some piece of a struggle that's going on in your little world as well. Maybe, just maybe, there's somebody in here who got some news this week they didn't want to hear or last month. Maybe, just maybe, there's somebody else in here who, like David, understands what it is to feel alone and to feel abandoned and to feel like even God isn't listening. To feel like nobody's in your corner. To feel like there's trouble and trials all around and you feel overwhelmed and you don't know what to do. Because you say you believe one thing But life is causing you to react in some other ways. Hey, if that's you this morning, be encouraged. Be encouraged. David understood how you felt. More than that, the Lord understands how you feel. And even though he might feel distant from you this morning, he's probably closer than you could ever possibly imagine. Trust him and wait. With all your heart, Do everything you can to be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Engage the help of the people around you who are in the body of Christ. Because if you can get a fresh glimpse of God, everything else will settle down and fall into place. Trust me. I lived it this week. You can live it too. Of course, at the end of this whole thing, I'd be remiss to to not tell you the psalm begins with David saying, The Lord is my light and salvation. All of this that I've told you this morning only applies if the Lord is truly your light and salvation. It's a personal song written by somebody who's in personal relationship with his God. If you're here this morning, you don't know the, you don't know God because you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died in your place, who shed His blood for your sin, who took on the penalty of your sin, the full wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to endure it if you've never recognized that you're a sinner, turned from your sin, and submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, none of this psalm applies to you. Life just may overwhelm you. So I would challenge you, if you want help, if you want hope, there's only one place to go. It's to the Lord. It's to the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves you, and who stands before you, and He says, He says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to him this morning. If you're struggling, if you're having a hard time, run to the Lord. Let him change everything that there is to be changed about you in your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are you're a good savior. We're so thankful that we're not alone. Even when we feel like we are We're so thankful that we're never helpless Even though sometimes we feel like it We're so thankful that when life just blows in on us In ways that we have not anticipated And didn't ask for And we're hurting and bruised and afraid We don't have to run away from you We in fact can run to you And we can find help And we can find hope Lord, I pray if some have come this morning feeling overwhelmed and alone by what's going on in their life, their circumstances have crashed into what they say they believe, I pray that even in these quiet moments as we pray at the end, that You would begin to lift up their gaze off of the stuff that's going on and give them a glimpse of who You are. How big and majestic and sovereign and mighty and powerful and all-knowing and all-loving You are. That they might be overwhelmed with You. We pray this for the glory of Christ and for our good. Amen. Talk with you this morning or you'd like somebody to pray with you or you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you can just, while we stand and sing right now, you can just step out and come to the back. I'm in the back of the room. We've got others here who would love to pray with you and talk with you if you so choose. Let's sing.